Listen to me, we can often come to Jesus because we want him to do some things for us. In fact, a lot of times, the reason why we're motivated to come to Jesus is because of what we think he can do for us or what we think he will do for us. Jesus is wanting us to come to him just because of who he is. The people in the crowd Jesus fed on the shore of the Sea of Galilee were just like you and they were just like me and the, just like the people we interact with today. They were hungry. They were hungry. They were just like us. They were hungry and they were hell-bent on satisfying their hunger with something that would eventually spoil. And he, he kind of begins to talk to them one more time and he essentially says something to the effect of, you know, I, I know you want more food, but I am the food. Like, I, I know you want, you know, immediate provision, and I know you want your circumstances to change, but I am the thing that's going to change your heart. It's, it's, it's going to be me. Just as you eat bread and receive it into your body, you assimilate it into your body, and it sustains life. Receiving Jesus is what is supposed to sustain you spiritually. Assimilating him into your life is what is supposed to sustain you spiritually. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He says, I am the bread of life. We are concluding a teaching series we've been in really for the last couple months uh, called I Am. Uh, each week we have been looking at one of the different I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And uh, man, I've just been so uh, just personally encouraged kind of by the teaching season we've been in. It's been some of the most fun I've had in a while teaching. I uh, really enjoyed this series so far and uh, excited and sad to kind of conclude it here. Uh, really looking forward to where we're headed uh, for the summer. But uh, if you haven't been with us, let me just kind of bring you up to speed quickly as we try to tie this all together. Uh, what we've really been trying to do in this series is, uh, is just sort of cut through the noise of, uh, you know, all the opinion and all the speculation that is out there in secular culture about who Jesus is. We've been trying to do that really to tr so that we could clearly answer the question for ourselves, you know, of, of who is Jesus. Now, our approach to that question throughout this series so far has been unique, I, I think. It's been different than maybe... Uh, you might expect, because instead of having all of these external opinions and thoughts about who Jesus is, we thought we'd let him, you know, speak for himself, tell us who he is in his own words, right? And so that's really what's been going on uh, throughout this series so far. And we're eight weeks in and really seeing so far that all throughout the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus makes eight shocking statements to really articulate who he is. He makes eight shocking statements to really try to answer that question for himself of who he is. These shocking statements really articulate what he wants from us, the kind of relationship he wants to be in with you and with me. And so over and over again, he uses this phrase, I am, to refer to himself. And this is just basically his way of intentionally claiming that he is God. Right? I mean, he just is trying to clear that up. And the way Jesus communicates over and over and over again his deity and the fact that he is the God of the Old Testament is by taking this name, this phrase that God used in the Old Testament, that Yahweh used in the Old Testament to refer to himself through this very famous conversation with Moses at the burning bush. It's the phrase I am. And by invoking this phrase for himself, this name for himself, Jesus is trying to clear up all mystery, all confusion any doubt, any speculation about who he is, and he's essentially answering the question of who is Jesus, and the way he answers it is by saying, I am God. I am God. Now, we're concluding this series today, and we're looking at, I think, one of the most significant things Jesus ever says, like hands down, and we're looking at one of the most significant statements he ever makes about Himself. It's actually found in John chapter 6, uh, if you're taking notes or want to follow along. In fact, you could just open up your Bible there if you want to be uh, just kind of following along with us. Uh, we'll have lots of the scriptures on the screen as well. John chapter 6, verse 35, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, it's a pretty significant thing to say about yourself, don't you think? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a large, huge statement to say about yourself. It's, it's, it's certainly surprising. Anybody you'd ever meet who would say something like this, you'd be like, what are you talking about? We read this verse, and it's an incredible verse, isn't it? 
Like, it's a standalone verse. This is one of those scriptures that we could just lift off the pages of the Bible and put them on a magnet or on a coffee cup, and it stands alone. It's, it's a great verse. But when I look at John 6, 35 and read this, what I, what I notice kind of at first glance is that this is 35 verses down into the chapter, meaning that there's 34 verses that precede and there's plenty that follow. And so there's, there's a lot more context to this verse. There's a lot more context to this I am statement that Jesus makes. While it's great and it's encouraging and it stands alone, uh, within the broader context, things start to come to life to us that I think are going are gonna to have an impact on us today. So I want to kind of start at the beginning here. And at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus is in the process of performing one of his most incredible miracles. It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's a famous story, right, where he takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and he multiplies it, and he feeds a whole lot of people. This is an incredibly famous story that just about all of us have some sort of reference point on. Like, we've heard the story. It's been repeated to us over the years. You don't have to be much of a church person or much of a Jesus person to, like, know the gist of what this story is all about. It's one of Jesus' most incredible miracles he ever performed. Did you know that of all the miracles Jesus performed that are recorded in the Gospels, that there are only two of his miracles that are, that are recorded in each of the four different eyewitness accounts of his life, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It is his resurrection, which is a pretty big deal, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. I just think that's interesting. I think that's interesting. Because the four Gospels are all kind of written, they're all written from different people, from different vantage points, different perspectives, and to different audiences. And, and so each of the writers of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are, are kind of writing with, with an, their own unique purpose. And, and so they, they would at times, you know, include certain detail and leave certain detail out that maybe someone else would use. But, but what you find in, 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 in the four Gospels is that there are two miracles that are included in all four of them, and one is his resurrection, which you're, you're going to have to include that. If you're an eyewitness to a man being dead and coming back to life, you're going to write that down. But they include the feeding of the 5,000 because, because this is like one of the most unbelievable things they've ever seen in their life. They're thinking, you know, if I'm going to write a story, a narrative about the life of Jesus, I, I'm, I'm going to include that. I'm not going to leave that out. That had such a profound impact on them, right, that they included it in their narrative on the story, the life of Jesus. Now, the backdrop to the feeding of the 5,000 is that Jesus is in the midst of a teaching campaign. He is teaching about the kingdom, and this is taking place really out in the wilderness, in the desert, and uh, they are away from towns. They are away from cities. They're away from supplies, and, uh, and so Jesus is speaking for a while. He's been talking for quite a while, and people are starting to get hungry. Now, I think we all understand that they don't have access to, you know, five guys or steak and shake. You know, they can't, like, go get, you know, 50 number fours and 100 number eights and then bring it back and start passing it out. That's not possible, right? These are uh, people Jesus is ministering to, he's teaching, who, who essentially have nothing. They're primarily farmers who are sort of eking out a very modest living from the earth. That's what's going on here in the story. So they don't have access to, you know, you know large surplus. You know, they don't have large, you know, um, you know grain bins and, and access to, 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 you know, huge amounts of food. And so anytime you had a gathering crowd and distance from supply, you know, it was cause for concern. People would get nervous. Like, what are we going to do here? And that's really what's going on here in John chapter 6 and in the feeding of the 5,000. In this story, so I said, you know, we have all four gospel writers give us this account. Did you know that every single one of the gospel writers tells us what Jesus did, but only one of them tells us why Jesus did it? In fact, Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Mark reveals this to us. He says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. I'm going to leave that up for a second. Mark tells us that Jesus had compassion on these people, on this crowd. That word compassion right there in the Greek is the word splanknin, which means from the innermost place, from the innermost you know, part of who you are, from the intestines, from the bowels. And so, you know, this isn't just like a surface level type of compassion. It's not like you hear a sad story and you feel bad for a moment and you forget about it the next day, right? I mean, it's not, it's not like a 24-hour news cycle kind of compassion. 
Mark is telling us that Jesus sees these people and he is moved with a deep compassion for them because when he sees them, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, as people who are wandering hopelessly. It's, it's affecting him deeply. And, and what it motivates Jesus to do in that moment, like it says right here, is, is to begin teaching them many things. And so right here we see that that Jesus is going to start functioning out of his compassion and he's going to start functioning out of his power by taking five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding like over 5,000 people. You know, and, and really they only, they only are recording the men. So that you're talking probably more like 12,000 people Jesus feeds here. It's an incredible, incredible story. Now what I want to do here before we get into the miracle and, uh, and get into the verses that reveal, you know, what Jesus did. There's a lot of detail that we don't want to miss. There's a lot of detail that comes before the miracle that I think is incredible. And I think all of this sort of sets up uh, the significance of what Jesus says about himself 35 verses down in this chapter. In verse 5, it says this, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Do you notice here in these scriptures that Philip answers a question that Jesus never asked? Philip answers a question that Jesus didn't even ask. Philip says eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread to give everyone a bite. He is responding to how they're going to fix this problem, to how they're going to get it done. But that's not what Jesus asked. Jesus didn't ask how. Jesus asked, where are we going to get the food? It's, It's a big difference. Philip is responding to the how. He's not answering the question of where. When I look at this encounter that Jesus has with Philip, I see Jesus subtly trying to communicate to Philip that the how can change, that how's methods can come and go, but that the question you really should be asking and the question that matters most is where is your source? Where is your hope? Where is your source of life? Where is your motivation and your inspiration and where does that come from? You know, I want to be like the writer of Psalm 121 who says, who says here, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I I, want to be like this. And I can tell you, you know, what I've learned time and time and time again over and over in my life, my wife and I could tell you story after story where we have just learned that God just shows up. He just shows up. Like, like, like this is the the most incredible, like, odds that are stacked against, against them and I don't know how many of you have ever felt that in your life. You felt like the odds are stacked against you in such a huge way. And what I've just learned over and over again is that God just shows up. He just shows up. And I don't always know how he's going to do it, okay? Because the how can change. And how's methods come and go. I don't always know how he's going to do it. But when he does, I know where it came from. I mean, let, me just, let me just give you that one more time. I don't always know how he's going to do it. But when he does, I know where it came from. How many of you are grateful this morning? to know where your help comes from, right? You know, where your help comes from. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to catch this thought. Jesus already has the solution for the problems you don't even know exist. Jesus already has the solution for the problems you don't even know exist. And in this story, what we find with the disciples is that they seem to be completely unaware of the problem that they are about to face, In fact, as you read the text, it sure seems like they are surprised. It sure seems like they are taken off guard. Like they're unprepared for what they're dealing with, and they're not sure of how to handle it. But I am deeply encouraged, as you should be as well, when you read through this chapter, that it tells us that Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. He wasn't taken off guard. He wasn't caught by surprise. He already had in mind what he was going to do because Jesus already has a solution for the problems you don't even know exist. I mean, I can keep, keep preaching if you'd like. I mean, he, I mean, that's good stuff. He already has the solution for the problems you don't even know exist. 
And so what I want to do here as we continue on in the story, what we see is that Jesus starts to really provide the solution to the problem. Because he has the solution already in mind. He starts to provide the solution. And so in verses 8 through 9, it says this. It says, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And so what happens here is they take the loaves, they take the bread, and they hand them over to Jesus. The Bible tells us they hand these loaves and these fish over to Jesus. You know, I wonder, what if the thing holding you back most isn't what you don't have? What if the thing holding you back most isn't what you're missing? What if the thing holding you back most is your inability to hand over to Jesus what you do have? Let me say that again. What if the thing holding you back most is your inability to hand over to Jesus what you do have? I think it's amazing how we can, we can like so often think that when we get to a certain place of wealth and influence, then we'll finally have what we need to hand something over to Jesus. Then we'll finally be in a position to hand something over to Jesus. You got to listen to me today. Do not wait until you have more money to start handing your money over to Jesus. Do not wait until you have more time to start handing your time over to Jesus. Give him what you do have and watch him do with it in his hand more than you ever could have thought possible with it in your hand. And it might seem insignificant. It might seem like not much can really come from this. But listen to me. Our our Lord breathed into dirt and created a man. What could he do with your dirt? Just give him what you do have. Give him what you do have. Give him what seems insignificant. Give him what seems small and watch him do with it in, your, in his hand more than, than you ever thought could be possible with it in yours. Just give him what you do have. And so the story goes on. The miracle begins to be unfolded here in verse 11. It says, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So they are filled to their full, and there are leftovers. Jesus doesn't just provide enough, he provides more than enough. Right? I mean, he's the God of leftovers. I love this right here. So this kind of sets up the context. This sets up really the backdrop to this really incredible I am statement. Let me just give you a little bit more. So what's going on here is these people have just seen Jesus meet their tangible needs firsthand, and as a result, their hearts are beginning to fill with excitement. I mean, these are Jewish peasants who are living under the oppression of King Herod. They're living under the weight of the entire Roman Empire, and so for them, you know, a man who could provide like this would be very, very, very appealing, very useful to them. And so the thinking in their mind is that if Jesus could do something this big during his teaching campaign, imagine what he could do if we elected him to government. They're, they're, they're thinking, man, do these miracles scale from like 5,000 to 50,000? You know, how big is Jesus' gift is really what they are wondering. And this is why we find in the Gospels over and over and over again, if you're taking notes, that Jesus never wanted his miracles to get, into the, get in the way of his mission. He never wanted his miracles to get in the way of his mission. And so what's going on here is that these people want a prophet. They want a king. And so what Jesus is going to basically say to them, he's going to basically say, I am a king, but my kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. He's going to basically say to them, I, I, I didn't come to fix the political problem. I came to fix the human problem. But the problem here in this story, the issue in the story, is that these people are fixated on having their, their, uh, their, their hunger satisfied. They are, they are fixated on filling their stomachs, literally. They want Jesus to do the bread thing again. You know? They are fixated on crowning Jesus as the lightning rod to their political uprising. And this is why, over and over again, we see that Jesus would often do the big thing. He'd do the miracle, and then he would retreat. In fact, that's exactly what happens here in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. 
and then he takes off. He tries to get away from the crowd. We read that he even, you know, walks on the water, uh, you know, at midnight or through the night, you know. Uh, It's in the middle of John chapter 6, that famous story. He walks out to his disciples on the water. Well, the next morning, people begin to find out that Jesus has moved on somewhere. In fact, his location begins to be revealed. And when people start to hear where he is, they, they, they take a beeline in his direction and they come to Capernaum where Jesus is speaking in the synagogue. And as this crowd, this, this, this like multitude of people come towards him, they are, they are coming to Jesus wanting more from him. They want more food. They want more provision. And that is exactly what is happening here. And as Jesus begins to interact with the crowd for a second time, he is really looking to try to change their understanding of the sort of king that he is and the sort of kingdom that he is bringing and the purpose that he has for their lives. That's, that's what's going on here. He, he's trying to like shift it. Like you think that I'm just like a miracle worker or you just want some, some tangible food. Like he's trying to change their understanding of the kind of king he is and the kind of kingdom he's bringing. And so he brings them together. And he, he, he kind of begins to talk to them one more time and he essentially says something to the effect of, you know, I, I, I know you want more food, but I am the food. Like, I, I know you want, you know, immediate provision, and I know you want your circumstances to change, but I am the thing that's going to change your heart. It's, it's, it's going to be me. And so what we find in the story is that Jesus really does this incredible miracle. He does this incredible miracle of feeding 5,000 people for the purpose not only of meeting their, their physical, tangible need, but he does this to really to really set up this huge reveal of his shocking I am claim. That he is the bread of life. And so the story picks up in John chapter 6, verse 25 through 35. We're going to give you 10 verses here. I think you can handle it, all right? So let me just give these to you. They're incredible. Incredible. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, right? They're finding him in Capernaum, like I just told you. They asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? right? Remember, he walked across the, la- the, the water, okay? When did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of, which, which the son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval, then they asked him, what, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. There is an entire sermon right there I did not have time for today. And that was the hardest part of this message today was just like, I mean, I had, I had so many notes. You guys, you guys are, are going to be, you know, trust me, you are, you are grateful that I did not uh, do my first plan, okay? I was like, this is going to be so long. Okay, so... Um, He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, so what... Jesus, what the crowd is talking about, their, their understanding of the bread of life or, or, or whatever is, is that when their ancestors were in the Old Testament were in the wilderness, they were very hungry, right? And they were grumbling and they thought life would be better in Egypt. And so God miraculously provides this bread-like substance called manna to appear on the ground every morning when they would wake up and they would, they would exit their tent. They would see this food that had been provided miraculously by God. And it would sustain them. It would keep them. Now, these people, they, they were not allowed to, to store it up. They could only take enough for that day, and, and, and except for the day before the Sabbath. Then they could, they could store up for an extra day. And what would happen is these people, like, wouldn't listen, right? They, so they, they, would, they would still go and take more than they needed, and they would put it in, like, the closet or whatever. They'd store it somewhere. And uh, they'd go to get it the next day, and it'd be spoiled, And so God was trying to teach these people in the wilderness daily dependence upon him, that he is their source, that he is their life, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what God is trying to to help them understand, that it's daily dependence upon him. And so they have this context, they have this understanding, they have this story in their history of God providing a a bread-like substance for 
their ancestors, and so they, they say, you know, what miraculous sign are you going to give us? To which Jesus is like, did I not just give you a pretty big miraculous sign, you know? I mean, like, he probably didn't say it like that. It's a good thing I wasn't Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You know, it's like, I, are you kidding me? Like, like I just gave you, like, the, the biggest thing, miracle you've ever seen in your life. What else, what else do you need me to do? And they're like, could you just give us, like, another miraculous sign? I just, I'm not really quite sure, you know, that you really know what you're talking about. And so... They said, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, listen, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. They don't even know what they're asking for. Because these guys just want to see Jesus do the bread thing again. They don't even know what they're asking for. They want, they want to see Jesus just do another, do another miracle. Remember, they got plans for him now. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus calls himself in this passage of Scripture and in some of the verses that follow, he calls himself the bread of heaven. He calls himself the bread of God, the bread of life, and the living bread. This is an extraordinary claim. And it is a claim that only God could make. He's making the claim that there is a thirst of the human heart. There is a hunger of the human soul that will only find its fulfillment and its satisfaction in him. That is the claim Jesus is making here in John chapter 6. It's kind of significant. And he's using bread here as a metaphor to really teach a spiritual truth. Just as you eat bread and receive it into your body, you assimilate it into your body and it sustains life. Receiving Jesus is what is supposed to sustain you spiritually. Assimilating him into your life is what is supposed to sustain you spiritually. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He says, I am the bread of life. If you're taking notes, I want you to catch this. This is, this is the disconnect. This is what the people don't understand. If you're taking notes, you've got to catch this. The crowd of people don't really want more of Jesus. They want more of what Jesus can do for them. They don't really want more of Jesus. They're not drawn to him because of who he is. They're drawn to him because of what he can do for them. They're chasing him down from town to town. Not because they just love him and want to be around him. They want more miracles. Now, I mean, let's give them a little bit of a break because, like, I see myself in them. Right? I'm like, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Let's, like, let's go watch what else he can do, you know? And it, 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 it's pretty incredible here, but they don't, they don't want more of Jesus. They want more of what he can do for them. Listen to me. We can often come to Jesus because we want him to do some things for us. In fact, a lot of times, the reason why we're motivated to come to Jesus is because of what we think he can do for us or what we think he will do for us. Jesus is wanting us to come to him just because of who he is. That's the difference here. And that's what Jesus is wanting to communicate to you and to me. And, and you know, we go through seasons and periods of our time where we do seek the hand of God and we come to God in prayer and we want God to do these miracles. And we want God to like move powerfully and all this and that. And, and he cares about that and he wants to provide for our needs and he wants to meet our physical needs. But what he really wants to know is, can you come to me for more than that? Can you come to me for more than just what I can do for you? Can you come to me because of who I am? Because of who I am. He's, like, he's saying to them, essentially here, you know, you've come to me because you want me to do something for you, but I'm wondering, can you just come to me because of who I am? He's saying, you know what I've done, but do you know who I am? Because who I am is greater than what I've done. You, you've seen what I've just done. You've seen what I just accomplished. You saw the miracle. But do you actually know who I am? Who I am is such, such a bigger deal. Who I am is, is way more important than what I just did for you. Jesus, if you're taking notes, will always challenge the intentions and the motivations of our heart. And that is exactly what he's doing with the crowd. And that's what he continues to do with you and I. 
He doesn't just want us to come to him for benefits. He wants us to come to him for relationship. This is perhaps the most significant issue facing the church in the West, I think. We want Jesus' power, but we don't want the person. We want the miracle, but we don't want the depth of relationship. We want the blessing, but we don't want the burden. This is, this is perhaps the biggest issue facing the church in the West, because it's not an issue that we see in other parts of the world in Christendom. It's primarily an issue that shows up in the church of the West. We want him to come through. We want his power. We want his blessing, but we really want it on our terms. We want the, 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 the whiz-bang God candy, like my uncle used to say, but we don't want like the, the person. Jesus is saying, look, like, my kingdom is upside down. It's completely different. Like, I, I, I just want to know, like, I'm happy to do these things, but do you just want, is it possible that you would just ever want only me? This is why Jesus basically says that the only reason why you came and found me is because I filled your bellies, because I gave you some bread. But what you don't realize is that, the, is that that bread is temporary and that that bread spoils. In fact, verse 27 here, I want to just highlight that quickly. You can read this with me, but it just says, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for food that spoils. One of the most significant things I think that Jesus ever says is that there is food that spoils. I think it's one of the most significant things he ever says is that there is food that spoils. There is a deeper spiritual hunger that Jesus is getting at in this story. A hunger that exists in the human heart. A hunger that cannot be satisfied with anything other than God himself. This is why it is, it is so tragic when people ignore God and spend money on cheap substitutes. Substitutes that don't last and can never actually bring them joy. He's, he's saying, like, don't work for food that spoils. And people do this all the time. We do this all the time. Have you ever fallen into the trap of doing this yourself. I mean, think about it. You can, you can try to do this, but it doesn't last. It ends up spoiling. Like you can, you can buy sleep, but you can't buy peace. It, it doesn't last. You can buy entertainment, things to distract you, but you, act, you cannot buy joy. It, 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 it ends up spoiling. It doesn't last. It's temporary. You can buy a reputation, I suppose, or you can create a reputation. Can't buy character. Can't buy character. If you're taking notes, this is why I would say this to you, that settling for the quick thing will often prevent you from getting the best thing. Settling for the quick thing will often prevent you from getting the best thing. And this is really what's happening in the story. They, they want the quick thing. They want the, they want the actual tangible food. They want to fill their bellies up, and they don't understand. If they would just hold off on that for a second, if they would just stop for a minute and understand who is in front of them and who is speaking to them, that their lives could actually be incredibly different than they could ever imagine. He's communicating to those in search of a quick fix. He's communicating to those in search of another miracle that the bread that comes quick is the bread that spoils. It does not last. The bread that provides quick satisfaction, the bread that offers quick happiness, the bread that provides a, a quick fix or quick pleasure, does not last. And Jesus just knows that there is a trap that many of us will fall into. He knows that this is really a trap that most of us are going to come face to face with, and many of us are going to become ensnared by it. The trap is the belief that real life is somehow found within these shallow longings of this world. It's the trap. That real life, that the significant life, that the life we all really want deep inside, that the, the life that we all long for deep within us is somehow found in chasing cheap substitutes and shallow longings. And this is why Isaiah says this in Isaiah 55, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. 
And so the question maybe of most importance this morning is this. What are you feeding yourself with and will it spoil? What are you feeding yourself with and will it spoil? Henry David Thoreau says this. He says, the more we know about the ancients, the more we find that they were like the moderns. And I think what he's getting at here, I think, I think what I, what I kind of pull out of that is that you know, when we read the Bible with a sincere desire to learn, we soon meet ourselves in its pages and see ourselves as we really are. The more we know about the ancients, the more we find that they're like the moderns, that they're just like us. You know, we see ourselves in the pages of Scripture. You read the Bible and it confronts you. It, 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 it you know, it's uncomfortable. In fact, the truth and the vulnerability of these moments, these experiences are not always enjoyable. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've had, you know, over the years where somebody comes up to me, at, you know, after, after church or sometime I've spoken and, and most people, uh, you know, most people are kind and like to say, you know, Pastor, that was great. And I'm usually I'm like, you know, what, what was great about it? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But uh, I'm like, tell me, you know, prove to me you were listening. But, um, you know, they, oftentimes people will say, you know, it was great, loved it. Some people will come up to me, and this has happened many times, where they'll, they'll just say, Pastor, like, did you write that just for me? Was that message, like, just for me? Like, I, 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 like I'm, you know, they're, like, borderline offended. They're joking, but they're kind of offended. Like, did you just, like, did my wife call you last night? Like, what is going on, you know? And what's happening with these people? What's happening to people like that? Because, of course, I don't have the time to do that. Of course, I would never write a message that is directed at one person in a room like this, you know, but, but it happens, and people feel that. What's really going on? What's going on is that these people are meeting, meeting themselves in the Bible, and it's revealing their dirt. They're seeing their reflection in the mirror, and aren't, they aren't sure they like it. And as James talks about very clearly, he talks about this principle, they're, they're wanting to leave quick or go away to forget what they look like. So they're frustrated, like, are, are you really... My wife called you, like, like, and they're like, they want to they get on. They want to get on with their life because they want to they forget what they just saw. This is us. This is us. This is why, you know, we, we, can, we can preach our hearts out and, and we can have a powerful two months of teaching like this. And you can be convicted in your heart and you can walk away and transformation could, not ha- could, could potentially not happen in your life. Because you're, you're, you're more uncomfortable with what you saw and you want to forget what the, the word just revealed to you about you that you are motivated to change the very thing you just saw about yourself. The more you consider the crowd that followed Jesus 2,000 years ago, the more you discover how much they actually resemble people today and how much they resemble me and how much they resemble you. Crowds are crowds and people are people. The people in the crowd Jesus fed on the shore of the Sea of Galilee were just like you and they were just like me and the, just like the people we interact with today. They were hungry. They were hungry. They were just like us. They were hungry and they were hell-bent on satisfying their hunger with something that would eventually spoil. We're no different. Were no different. They were hungry and they didn't even know what they were actually hungry for. Perhaps the biggest challenge that we are facing within secular culture today is that almost everything that is sold to us as a, as, as a vision of what life is about is a lie. Anything promoted and or promised to have the ability to give us that sense of life and satisfaction we desperately long for isn't going to get the job done. It's one of the biggest issues we have. It's the trap we fall into. We find ourselves trying to satisfy hungers and longings with things that will eventually spoil. And so what are you feeding yourself with? And will it spoil? 1 John 2, I guess I'll give you these verses a few weeks early. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust 
of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Look at this. The world and its desires pass away. They spoil. They're not eternal. They don't last forever. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Lives forever. And we know this. Like, we, we know this. It's amazing to me how, how much we know. And maybe how little we apply. This just is heavy on me today for some reason. And I... Um, you know, I, I don't just, like, try to smack you in the face every week, right? I, I mean, I love you, but this is, this is big. This is huge. This is important. But we know so much, and we can apply so little. We have more information at our fingertips than any generation that has ever lived. I mean, think about the first century who followed Jesus. Like, we have way more content than they had. They didn't even have Bibles half the time. They had like a page or a snippet. They had like a, a story that was told to them, and somehow they were, they, were, they were like literally changing the world. It's because when they were hungry, they, they, they knew how to feed themselves correctly. And when we're hungry, we feed ourselves very inappropriately at times. We feed ourselves with things that will just end up spoiling, things that don't last. I'm going to invite you guys on. If you're taking notes here, check this thought out. Jesus makes the claim in this I am statement that he is the only one who can satisfy our deepest hunger. Jesus makes the claim that he is the only one who can satisfy our deepest hunger. One of the things you may not know about Jesus is that he always attracted a crowd. And oftentimes when he was done speaking, the crowd would be pretty small. And this is one of those same stories. He had thousands of people who wanted access to him. He had all kinds of people who wanted something from him. They wanted more bread. They wanted more miracles. They wanted more things. But when Jesus starts to actually give them the truth, when he starts to expose in them what's really going on, and begins to tell them who he really is, the Bible tells us that the crowd gets smaller and smaller and smaller. In fact, after we read you know, the, the end of chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 7, we realize that it's just the 12 disciples who are remaining. And he's like, are you going to go too? Are you going to leave too? Have, have the words that I said offended you also to where now you're going you're gonna to leave me and desert me as well? Here's what Jesus says that causes people to pack up and go home. He says in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among, among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right there, they're thinking this is some sort of spiritual cannibalism. This is honestly what they're thinking. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no life in you. Because everything else you're eating is spoiling, it's dying, it's decaying, it's not lasting. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. You remember the last week we talked about him being the true vine, remaining in him, 
and what that really looks like. He, he, he is communicating that here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. He says in verse 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And it is at this point that everybody, except for the 12, get up and go. This is too much. This is too much. Because it's one thing to let Jesus do some pretty cool things for you. It's another thing to make him the source of your life. It's one thing to let Jesus answer some prayers. It's one thing to, to let Jesus provide some pretty amazing things for you. It's another thing to center and order your life around him. It's too much for a lot of people. That's why the road is wide that leads to destruction. But the road that leads to life is narrow and few will find it. Hmm. You know, just give me a second here. The only proper way to follow Jesus is to feast on him and find life. And that's, that's the invitation. That we would come to him, that we would feast on him, that he, he would be the very thing that satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. I think too often we end up feasting on things that don't have the ability to satisfy at all. And the question is, are we, are we willing to come? Are we willing to feast on Jesus? Are we willing to order, reorder, reorient our lives around him entirely? Are we willing to allow him to be, for us, the bread of life, the very thing that satisfies? Hmm. Would you stand with me? These guys are getting ready to play. But I really, I'm really sensing like a moment here and I don't want you to let it pass you by. I realize, you know, you might be getting hungry or whatever, but, but I got a different kind of bread, right? Okay, so listen. God's doing something in this room right now. For some of you, God's doing something significant in your heart. I, I, I can feel it, I know. He is, he is here, he is in this moment. As the God of the universe is here and wants to encounter you, the question is, what are you feeding on? What are you feeding on? What are you relying on to sustain you? What are you depending on as your source of life? What are you feeding on and will it spoil? Would you just bow your heads for a moment here? You're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, there are some things, honestly, that I have ordered my life around. There are some things that I have chosen to feed on that just seem to not be lasting. It's certainly not Jesus. And today, right now, you would just say that it is time. Today is the moment for you to reorder some priorities, to get some things fixed to invite the bread of life to come into you, to assimilate the bread of life into your body. To fill up on Jesus. And you would just say, that's you today. Can I just see your hands? I wanna, I wanna give you some I wanna encouragement and prayer today. That's you right now. There, 
Honestly, every head's bowed, eyes are closed, but there are hands everywhere in this room. You are not alone. In the name of Jesus right now. In the name of Jesus right now. Every obstacle, every chain, every wall, every barrier, in Jesus' name, everything that has enticed and drawn away, in Jesus' name, we cut it off, we break it off, we command it. Now, we send it to the foot of the cross, in Jesus' name, where the blood of Jesus covered it, paid for it, gave us new life. And so today, God, I pray that you would just come. I pray you put your arms around every person in this room who is unsatisfied with the things they have been feeding on, and I pray that you would begin to give satisfaction and life to every person under the sound of my voice. I thank you that you are the bread of life, and we come to you today, God, and we want to feast on you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Everything that's getting in the way. Everything that is getting in the way, God. We speak to every mountain, every obstacle right now. Everything the enemy has sought to steal, kill, and destroy. And we just ask for the abundant life to just take over in this place right now. And Lord, I just ask that as we intentionally make these steps to feast on you, to assimilate the bread of life into us in new, fresh ways. God, that some of these other things would just start to shift and change as a result. They'd start to fall off. They'd start to not matter. They'd start to sort of take care of themselves. And so, Father, just forgive us of any time, any ways where we have just centered our lives around things other than you. Jesus' name. May you just receive something so genuine in this room right now, God. Something so authentic. In your name. Amen. 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 Well, that's a good morning. Yeah. Yeah, I sure love you guys. And uh, it's, it's a privilege to do this together as a family. And uh, God's up to some big things. Just give him a shot. Give him a chance. And uh, have a wonderful week. Enjoy your holiday tomorrow. And uh, we will see you back next week as we kick off 1 John.